marriage, her job, and just really everyday living. And the reason why is because pornography has taken over her life. Um, it's her drug, and she's addicted. Jill wants to change. She's tried everything to change. She's done internet software. She's done accountability groups. She's just said no. I mean, she's shamed herself. She's tried to load up on the fear of punishment. She's reading her Bible more. She's praying more. She's talking to her pastor. She's turning her phone off at night. And by the way, these are all great things except the shame part and the fear of punishment part, loading up on that. Uh, Y'all, there might be... uh, if you got some seats, there are some seats. If you wouldn't mind scooting in just a little bit so folks that are coming in could still get on the outside and not have that awkward, like, walk over you kind of moment, thank you. And I bet they love that I just said that in front of everybody. That was probably the worst thing I could have done. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> By the way, my name's Jeff. It's nice to meet y'all. Um, so here's the deal. She doesn't know what to do. She absolutely does not know what to do. How does Jill change. How does she change practically? Okay, so Jack is a Christian, and when he reads his Bible, he sees those lists of bad stuff, you know, the itemization of bad sins, you know, the sins that are itemized, like the kind we're going to look at in Colossians 3, like in, in verse 5. She, he sees that stuff, the stuff that Jill struggles with, stuff like sexual immorality, which means we're going to look at it here in a minute. If you want your Bible open now, your electronic device, go for it. Colossians 3, we're going to look at 1 through 14. He sees the sexual immorality, which is basically any kind of sexual sin, or impurity, which is any kind of moral corruption. It's everything from uh, abandoning your spouse and your kids to uh, disobeying your parents to uh, murder, to lying, to stealing, the Ten Commandments. Uh, also on that is that list is passion, which just means losing self-control. It's over-drinking. It's overeating, It's over-worrying. It's mega-epi-desires for good things, but they've spilled over the banks, and they've overthrown your life, that we over-worry. It's okay to worry. Everybody, you're going to live in this world? You're going to be a human being? You're going to worry, but the Bible talks about over mega worry. It's okay to like adult beverages. They are good, but to over-mega them is not. And you can do that with food. You can do that with exercise. You can do it with everything that's good. That's what passion means in this passage when we get to it. And then there's evil desires, and that's just mega-epi over-desires for bad stuff, okay? So when Jack reads these bad lists, he feels okay about himself. He, he honestly doesn't struggle in these areas. And in fact, when others look at his life, they would say he's, in, he's incredibly zealous to obey God in these areas of his life. He's holy in these areas of his life. So when he gets to another list, like these relational sins that are listed in Colossians 3, interpersonal stuff like in 3.8, like anger, which is not just, again, being angry. It's okay to be angry. Notice that passage, whatever that means, be angry and don't sin. I think that's that quick to anger, and it's anger overtaking you. Uh, So there's this anger, there's wrath, there's this rage, there's malice in this. These are all relational sins, right? Malice is a settled attitude of anger and ill will towards someone. It's not just, you know, you have a dispute, 
and you resolve conflict, like which you know never happens in our marriage, but sometimes for some of you, you have these marital adjustments that need to happen. Uh, malice is when a mindset and a heart set, a dark mass sits in your gut, and you now have a settled animosity towards that person. That's malice. Slander is this settled attitude of anger and ill will now moving towards your speech and your communication. It's abusive. And that's why the last one on that list is obscene talk, which is the whole spectrum of speech sins. So again, when Jack reads these things, he feels okay about himself. He honestly doesn't struggle with them. And in fact, others would say he is zealous about obeying God in those areas. However, those closest to Jack would describe his zeal for holiness as being metallic, unattractive. In other words, people aren't drawn to Jack. They run from him. So how does Jack change? How does Jill change? Practically. Welcome to Colossians 3, 1 through 14. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, shine on the page. Would you fill us with your spirit? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you reach us and renew us, give clarity to the mind, realness to the heart. Jesus, show up, producing change on the spot. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so today we get practical about life change. So Jill represents the specific and concrete need for life change that's found in Colossians 3, uh, the struggle with sexual sin. Jack represents the specific and concrete need for practical life change also in Colossians 3 concerning the lack of love. So this is very practical. So I hope, I hope we can walk away with a concrete reality of what it means to live a gospel life. Because that's what we're going to look at. How do Jack and Jill change practically? Paul has a definitive answer here, and it's in verses 1 through 4. It is a clear answer. And that for some of us, you need to settle it. You need to settle it, not settle a specific area of your life. You need to settle what Christianity is all about. That it is about good news, not good advice. And what I'd like for us to see from this text today is that you will become much more confident in that reality. And that when you start looking at imperatives and commands and practical life change, you know the connection between that and the gospel. And that the gospel is the only power to actually accomplish those things. And that some mystery movement of the Holy Spirit doesn't do it. And some yielding or surrendering on your part doesn't do it. Some act of your will doesn't do it. Some settled resolve within you doesn't do it. That there's only one power to change your life, and the power is not within you. It's outside of you and someone else. And that's what we're going to look at. So Paul summarized, I mean, he's basically... Uh, 3, 1 through 4, summarizes Romans 6, 7, and 8, which we've looked at. I told Ray I would say this, so I'm going to say this. He's like, Jeff, you need to say that. Remember when we were looking at 6, 7, and 8 these past three weeks? Most folks tend to see if Romans 6, 7, and 8 as this dynamic of moving progressively somewhere better. Like Romans 6 talks about something, Romans 7 is kind of bad, and then you need to get into Romans 8. That's usually how those passages are looked at. What I want you to remember, those of you that were there, those of you who want to go back and listen to them, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all looking at the same thing, just from a different angle. It's a diamond with, oh, that's a beautiful cut, Romans 6. Oh, that's an incredible cut, Romans 7. Wow, look at that cut, Romans 8. Same thing, different angle, not something new that you need to get into. And if you don't, you're going to be stuck in Romans 7. Okay? All right, so Paul's answer is basically in 1, in one through 4, he's summarizing 6, 7, and 8, and he's saying, listen, how do you practically live a gospel life? How do you change? He says you live a gospel life. You learn to build your messy life and your messy relationships around Jesus and his salvation. That is life change. And whatever concrete realities we get into, it's going to be about that and not anything else. That's why I might need to talk about the law next week. I want you to look at verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Present tense. 
Seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This is the same thing as saying, live a gospel life. Build your messy life in relationships around Jesus and his salvation. That's our language. There's Paul's language. Same thing. In fact, Jesus and his salvation is the focal point of verses 1 through 4. In other words, it's the engine driving the practical life change in 3 and the rest of the book. 1 through 4 is summarizing chapters 1 and 2. And now he's going to apply it into practicality and life change. In fact, Christ, the word, is mentioned four times in 1 through 4. The emphasis, the whole thrust of 1 through 4 is experience the Christ. Experience the gospel. Experience Jesus and his salvation. It changes everything. That's what he's saying. The image here is breathtaking. It's so breathtaking. The high priests in Israel, when they would serve God, they stood and actually tied a rope around their leg. And they would go in and they would serve Israel and stand between Israel and God and bring the two together. But when they would go in, they would go in and they would stand. And the question is, why would they stand? And the answer is, because their work was never done. Their work was never finished. Their work was never completed. Their work was never accomplished because there, there was no sacrifice for sin that was ever good enough. There was no there was no substitute devotion, some substitute obedience, some substitute blamelessness, some substitute spotlessness, some substitute righteousness. There was no substitute goodness that was ever good enough. There was no person and there was no work on the history of the earth from the beginning of humankind to this very day that was good enough and powerful enough to save and rescue and deliver people. And so the priests did their work standing. Verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. This is present tense, and it's a main verb. You're supposed to, you're supposed to, Christ is there presently. Seek the things where he is and who he is presently, now in your life, a present power, now in your life. Where is he right now? Right now, there. And what is he doing while he's there? Is he standing? Sitting, seated at the right hand of God. Oh, y'all, this is so breathtaking because it's, it's done, it's finished, it's over, it's complete. There is someone who's good enough to save. There is someone who's powerful enough to rescue you. There is someone who is enough. And because he's enough, he sits. And all the reality of this person and what he has accomplished, Paul is saying, 
it comes breaking into your life in the present. Who he is and what he's done, who he is and what he's finished, who he is and what he's accomplished, who he is and what he's achieved, who he is and what he's attained, who he is and what he's performed. It's the power of God in your present. Set your mind on that. Don't be set in your mind like, how am I doing? How am I performing? Where's my spiritual? Oh, no, I can't find it. Even with God's help. How am I changing? How am I doing? How am I working? Am I holy enough? Am I good enough? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Paul is saying experience Jesus in salvation. Live a gospel life. The gospel changes you practically. The gospel is enough for you. Now I want you to look at verses 5 through 14. Now we get to the, really to the end of the book because the rest of the book is all commands and exhortations. Practical life change, right? This is specific. This is a gospel life applied to specific areas of life. This is specific, concrete areas in need of life change. So you got the area of sexual sin in verse 5. You got the area of moral breakdown, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, verse 5. You've got relational sins, verse 8 through 9. You've got the need for love in verses 12 through 14. Compassion and kindness, humility or self-forgetfulness, meekness, which means you're done trying to be self-important. Patience, which means you endure. You know what that means? Embrace the suck. That's what this means. Endure. Bearing with one another, friendship, forgiveness. In other words, verses 5 through 14 is about how people change practically. So how does Jill change practically? And then we're going to look at how does Jack change practically, and then we're done. How does Jill change practically? What does living a gospel life look like for Jill in her struggles with sexual sin? What does it look like? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So here it is. What does it mean to put to death sin? How do you put to death sin in your life? Now we're getting at it, aren't we? Now we're pushing into it. Now we're in the nitty-gritty. Now we're in the practical. Here's what I want you to hear more than anything. Whatever it means, it does not mean you do it. It does not mean you put to death your sinful nature. It doesn't mean you fix your flesh. If some of these words are <clears throat> new for you because you're just here today, here's the deal. Uh, we come into this world a zombie. We're physically alive but spiritually dead, a zombie. When you become a Christian, you are no longer a zombie. <clears throat> you get taken out. When Jesus exited the tomb, he took you with him. So before you were a Christian, you were one person with one nature, zombie, spiritually dead. A Christian, though, is now in Christ. He's out of the tomb. She's out of the tomb, united to Christ. But here's the deal. 
You're one person with now two natures. You're not a zombie, but the zombie's still attached to you. Here's the point. You and I, this passage, when it says put to death sin, is not telling you to turn to the indwelling sin within you, to turn to what's called the flesh, to turn to what theologians call the edemic self, to turn to what Paul calls the old self, to turn to what is called the sinful nature, to turn to what we're calling the zombie and try to put the thing to death. To try to fix this thing. To try to cure it and rehabilitate it and patch it up and make it alive. That's not what this text means. You can't manage, control, fix, change, maneuver, manipulate what verse 5 calls your earthly nature. This is so important. You can't kill it. You can't put it to death. It took the cross to do that. It takes Jesus' death to do that. Who are we to think we do that? Trying to put to death your sin is impossible. If God was to leave you and me as a Christian right now to leave us to ourselves, we would get absolutely nowhere in the Christian life. We would slowly disintegrate and deteriorate and decreate. Most of us live our Christian lives anxious, exhausted, and depressed from trying to cure the zombie, trying to heal the zombie, trying to fix the zombie, trying to make it alive, trying to kill it, trying to rehabilitate it. The Apostle Paul says it this way in another letter. He describes this kind of effort, this kind of energy that we exert. First, he calls us stupid. He says, oh, you stupid people. Why would you do that? And then he goes on to say, who cast a spell on you? You've begun by being united to Christ, the gospel. And now you're turning around and you're grabbing your flesh and you're trying to perfect it. How stupid can you be is what Paul says. So he's saying that. I'm not saying that. So don't take offense at me. Blame it on Paul. In other words, Paul is saying, why do you try to fix a zombie? It makes no sense. Practically, this looks like trying to subdue your zombie. So the zombie has its own thoughts and feelings and desires and loves and trusts and hopes and fears and doings. You experience them, and here's what we do. Oh, my word, you try to subdue them. You wrestle with them. You, you try to kill them and manage them and control them to keep them from breaking out in your life, and you have more resistance on them, more resistance on them. It looks like struggling with your sinful nature, engaging it, wrestling with it, and that becomes your Christian life. It looks like trying to improve your zombie by saying, gosh, I want this thing to have new thoughts and new feelings and new desires and new trusts and new worships. You killing the zombie is absolutely impossible. 
It took the death of Christ to do it. And it takes the cross today to do it. You can't do it. It's impossible. This is why Paul says just above, I should have had it read in here, but I didn't. I discovered it a little too late. The paragraph right before this passage in 2, Paul lists laws and rules. He lists acts of the will, surrenderings and yieldings and tapping into things like visions and angelic appearances. He talks about spiritual techniques and secrets and practices and principles. He says things like, quote, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Or he says all these human precepts and human teachings and this self-made religion. And he goes on and describes asceticism and all of us like, what is that? Well, this is what it means. Strict self-denial, strict self-discipline, strict abstinence, strict self-restraint. Then he says, and then we get real severe with our bodies. And then his line, his punchline at the end of all this is, quote, have no value in stopping the flesh. They can't kill the zombie. Jesus did not come to save the zombie. Jesus did not come to fix the flesh. Jesus did not come to patch up your old self. Jesus didn't come to cure your sinful nature. Jesus didn't come to rehabilitate your earthly nature. He came to kill it. Kill it. Kill it. It will never be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what those passages mean, by the way. So what does it mean then to put to death sin practically? Have I told you recently how much I love New Testament Greek? How much of a nerd and geek I am over Greek? Have I told you recently how God is in the grammar? Well, let me do this on this passage. Put to death. I want you to look at it. Get it. Underline it. If you have a 0.5 millimeter pencil, if not, do not touch your Bible. Put to death is not a present tense command. This is not a present tense imperative. So the text is not emphasizing. When Paul says this, he's not emphasizing what we are to do and what we are to continually to do. He's emphasizing something underneath it because the verb tense is not present. So it's not saying to you, look, Put this stuff to death right now, presently, and continually to do so. What he's describing is that there is a, the glacier, the tip of the glacier is this put-to-death part that we think we hear, but the mountain of glacier underneath the water is this. The tense is emphasizing and highlighting a death that's already done. finished it's complete and because there's a death that's already done it brings power into your present in other words the command to put to death the sin is doing something that's already been done for you it's experiencing a death that's already happened in other words, it's setting your mind on things above where Christ is seated because he accomplished it. 
And it's like, oh, my word. What I am dealing with, this thing called the zombie, and it's being expressed in concrete terms in terms of sexual sin, relational sin, not being a loving person. That's, that's, just, what, that's just what this thing does. And it was killed. It was put to death by Jesus on the cross. And so what does it mean for Jill to put to death her sin? It means to believe right now. It means to trust right now. It means to receive right now. It means to experience right now in the present that Jesus put to death her sexual sin for her. It's to experience the power of Jesus' death in this area right now, presently. It's building your life around his death, if we were to describe what we said earlier. Building your messy life, building your sexual sin struggle around his death. He killed it. He dealt with it. You are now free to be at war with it. You are now free from it. You just need to functionally experience that. One Colossian scholar says it this way. He also wrote the best commentary on Romans, Douglas Moo. This is not a seeking, so talking about all the imperatives in verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 12. He says this is not a seeking. This is not a setting of the mind. This is not a putting to death. This is not a putting away. This is not a putting on to possess. This is not a seeking to possess. This is not a putting to death to possess it, but to experience what is already possessed. It's done. Receive it into this area of your life. Some of you are saying, well, how will we do that? We'll, we'll talk about that. It's called faith, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Practically, this is what I think it looks like. It means identifying the specific struggles you have in your life. You've got to identify them. It's like naming, you know? It's like when you name it, you now know what it is. And everyone, no matter what your tradition is, I don't care whether you're Pentecostal or you're Methodist or you're Baptist or you're another ist, you, wherever you are on the spectrum, the two foundational realities of a life changing, the core realities are always the same. You have to understand yourself, which the Bible calls intelligent repentance. There's just no such thing as changing without you being aware of what exactly is going on. Intelligent repentance, honesty, understanding yourself, and then experiencing Jesus and his salvation. There's just no other way. Now, depending on your tradition, you're going to add a lot about stuff. You're going to weave in a lot about stuff, but let's just focus on those two right now. So identify is understanding yourself. So when you're in struggles, when you're in the midst of it, when you've got smoke everywhere, acknowledge the smoke. If you're overrun with anxiety, acknowledge the anxiety. If you're overrun with anger, acknowledge the anger. If you're overrun with lust, acknowledge the rust. Ident lust, identify it. You say something like this. Ah, there's those sexually charged thoughts, feelings, desires, and doings of my old self. There they are. That, there it is. This is what it feels like. This is what it looks like. This is what, this is what the old self does. 
and then leave it. Leave it. Leave the sexually charged thoughts, feelings, desires, doings with the old self. Leave it where you found it. Leave it where it is. That's what that thing does. That's what that nature is. It will never change. Let it leave it where Christ killed it. Let it be the dead corpse it already is. The moment you jump in and try to manage it, control it, you're going to be trapped. And then set your mind on things above. You say things like, Jesus, you are my life, which is what's talked about here. This thing is not my life. This thing is not my ultimate intimacy. This thing is not my ultimate beauty. This thing isn't my ultimate love, my ultimate acceptance. This is not my life. It's a corpse. Jesus, you are my life. All right, let's look at Jack, and then we'll end. So how does Jack change practically? Living a gospel life for Jack. What, is it, what does it look like for Jack to live a gospel life amidst his wonderful avoidance of bad stuff? Because he's lived a great life of avoiding bad stuff. However, those closest to him would say, but he's not a very loving dude. So this is what it means for Jack. Verse 12 through 14. Put on, then, God's chosen, as God's chosen ones. Isn't that interesting? It's like Paul just can't get away from the gospel at any time. Anytime he gives you an exhortation, he gives you an imperative, he slips in the gospel just to remind you, don't, don't disconnect these. If you do, it will ruin your life. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, as holy and beloved. In other words, because you're so loved, love back. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If you leave out, if you just say put on compassionate hearts without being deeply loved yourself, you will never love. That's what Paul's argument is. All right, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, and above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What does it mean to put on love? What does it mean? How do you do that? Whatever it means. Are you ready? It's the same thing for Jill. It does not mean you put on love. Whatever it means, it doesn't mean you're doing it. It doesn't mean that you produce a holy heart in yourself. It doesn't mean that you now fix your flesh and make it live. It doesn't mean that you sanctify and manage and control your earthly nature. This is so important. You can't produce love. You can't produce a holy life. It takes a new nature. It takes a new self. Trying to produce a holy heart is impossible. Most of us live our Christian lives anxious, driven, exhausted, and depressed from trying to produce a holy life. So we come to this we come to this zombie, this sinful nature, this edemic self, this old self, and we try to make it live, produce a holy life. We want new thoughts and new feelings and new desires to come out of it, and we're trying everything we can. And the Bible records this activity all the way back to the first human beings because it says that when Adam and Eve fell, the first human beings fell, the first thing they did was try to make themselves better. 
they're fallen, they're an earthly nature now, and what they did is they tried to clothe themselves. They tried to make it alive. The Bible calls that, theologians have called this self-justification. It is the driving impulse of the old self, the Adamic self, the sinful nature, the flesh, yada, yada, yada. You improving the zombie is impossible. You can't improve it. You can't produce love out of that thing. It will never love. This is why Paul's life-changing logic goes like this in verses 9 through 10. Notice what he says in 9. Do not lie to one another. Okay, why? Here's the answer. Because you have put off the old self with its practices. But when did I put off the old self with its practices? The answer is in chapters 1 and 2 and then the rest of the book. Well, Jesus' death, you put off your old self. That thing got killed. It got put off for you because the tense, the, the verb, the God in the grammar here says that it's a comprehensive, completed action in the past. So this is not you doing it right now. Well, when did I do this? Well, at Jesus' death. And then the, the logic continues. Do not lie to one another. Well, why? Well, because you put on a new self. Well, when did I put on this new self? And the answer from the text is, well, at Jesus' resurrection, you got a new self. Now, here we go. And because you have put on the new self, which is being renewed. Do you see that? The question is, which self is being renewed? Look at the text. Which self is being renewed? Is the old self being renewed? No. The new self. Do not miss this. Jesus didn't come to make the zombie alive. He didn't come to fix the flesh. He didn't come to patch up the old self. He didn't come to rehabilitate the earthly nature. He came to give you a completely new self by rising from the dead. So what does it mean to put on love? Well, for Jack, it's going to mean two things. He's got to do two things. Jill only had to do one. Jack needs to do this. He needs to confess that all his holiness has been covetousness and idolatry. What do we mean by that? In other words, Jack's avoidance of being bad is not coming out of a love for God. It's coming out of a love for self. And that's called covetousness. You see that word in there? That's actually at the end. It's, you get all these things, and then you get this word covetousness. It just doesn't make sense. Well, covetousness means this obsession, this need for more, to be more, to have more, to do more, to be more than you are. So some folks call it greed and they usually attach it to wealth and money and that's a lot how it's applied, but it's bigger than that. It's the last one of the commandments because it's inward and then it's called idolatry because whatever you have this incredible need for this mega epi over desire for, it means that you're looking for it to give you what only God can give you. That's why it's called idolatry. And so what, how do we know that uh, Jack is doing this? How do we know that he's being covetousness about his holiness? How do we know? Well, the answer is because he doesn't love. Because true holiness is never something without love. True holiness is actually being finally and fully ourselves, which means you're actually learning to be a loving person. So if your holiness is all about avoiding sins and doing the right thing, it's not holiness. 
What's Jack's idolatry? The answer is himself. So what does it mean for Jack now to believe, live a gospel life? It means for him to believe in the present that Jesus made him alive, that Jesus has given him a new nature, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave him new life. And now he needs to learn to live in that. He needs to learn to live a gospel life, to think the things that are above where Christ is seated, that he's accomplished this. This is a new self, a new life. It's now the fruit of the Spirit. This is now the life of the Spirit. This is now who you really are. This is your true identity. In other words, it's saying to Jack, listen, Jack, you just need to be who you already are. And the more that you begin to set your mind, in other words, the more you actually begin to understand who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, the more that you grow in understanding the gospel, the more you're going to trust him and trust what he's done. And that's how you change. Practically, it looks like this. Well, Jack, identify. You're going to identify things above. So you're going to say, like, humility. Whoo, yeah, boy. I need that. Compassionate heart, love, okay? You identify. You say things like, ah, yeah. Those things do not exist in the old self, and they never will. So leave it. Don't try to make the old self put these things on. It can't. So you identify the things that are above, these wonderful traits that are talked about here. You recognize the old self has no power to produce it. And then you set your mind on things above. Jesus, you are my life. You've, at your resurrection, you've given me new life, which means, which means I now can love. And then what do you do? You go love people back to life again. Wherever you are. Because he loved you back to life again.